Well, Jesus truly is the reason for the season, and He is the cause that we have to worship all year long, to celebrate Him, not just this time of year, but celebrate Him all year long. You know, on Sunday mornings, we get together and we have what we call a worship service. And the question comes, how in the world do we worship? What enables us to worship? And the Lord doesn't want us to just worship on Sunday morning when we're in here. He wants us to worship Him all week long. But how do we get at this business of worship? A lot of folks get discouraged because they understand worship is exclusively as a singing event. And if you don't get into singing or you don't sing well, or if you're like me and you couldn't carry a tune in a bucket if your life depended on it, or as David likes to say, you sing like you're in jail behind bars and trying to find the right key, then you sort of give up on the whole concept of worship. But Christmas means that God gave us the hope, the hope of worship. Whether you can sing or not sing, whether you do church or don't do, feel like you do very good at church, that's not the issue. God gives us the ability to worship Him. He gives us the hope of worshiping Him because God takes the initiative for us to worship. God took the initiative to enable us, empower us to worship Him. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 2, Matthew, chapter 2. And if you all could back off the monitors just a teeny bit, I would appreciate it. Matthew chapter 2, where we're going to look here at the story of the wise men. Now, when God came to them, He enabled them to worship. In fact, the big issue with the wise men is that they come and they worship the Lord Jesus Christ and giving of those treasures and so forth. But in examining how they come to the Lord and they worship the Lord... God initiated coming to them. These guys would have been pagans. They would have had no inclination to follow and to try to find the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God came to them and he initiated a relationship with them using the star and the words of the prophet Micah to draw them and to teach them and to empower them to worship. Matthew chapter 2, and we are going to begin with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Now, this second verse is a key verse in this narrative. Where, notice the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice how they identify Jesus. For we saw... Important personal pronoun here. His star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, my sermon outline is contained on the front of your Rocky Mount connection. I invite you, if you would, to follow along. How do we have hope to worship? It is not how well we're able to work up worship. It's not trying to get into some kind of emotional stance or whatever and, and stay there and sustain that. God takes the initiative in worship. We do not. I want to stress that again. God takes the initiative in worship. We do not. He is going to prompt us to worship Him. He's going to provide what we need to worship Him. And we just need to connect with Him at the place of worship. And by the way, the fundamental reason that you and I were created is for worship. We were made and we were created by God to worship Him. But He doesn't throw us out there and say, okay, come up with it on your own. Just try as hard as you possibly can. He comes alongside of us and He prompts our worship. Now notice verse 2. The wise men... And we always picture them as three guys. We are not sure whether they were just three of them or not. There could have been two. There could have been three. There could have been 15. The tradition is held that three, but that's all that there is uh, about it is tradition. So these wise men show up in King Herod's court. And notice what they say, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? In other words, they're asking, where is God? Now, Herod is probably not the best place to show up and ask a question like that. But these guys would have been coming as rulers and authorities from either Babylon or Persia. They would have gotten access to Herod because of their own importance. Herod probably would have been complimented and excited to receive them into his court. And it was only natural if you were a leader like that, you would have gone to the leader of the land. And they followed the star as far as the star had gone. And that was at that point to Jerusalem. And they asked the question, where is he? And how many of us... In 2020, have asked that question, where is God? And how many of us in 2021 will ask that question, where is God? How many times over the circumference of our lives have we found ourselves asking that question, where is God? And notice what happens in this story. These wise men had been given, we're not sure how, but information that Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews. He was going to be the Messiah. So they knew enough information to ask Herod that question. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? This star had come up. Now, the ancients believed in those days it was common sense among the Babylonians and the Persians, etc., the people of the ancient Middle East, that when there was a special star that would begin to shine, that it was indicative that royalty would have been born. 
And so when they saw this star come up, it wasn't like they were followers of God or anything, but it was just common in the culture of that day to believe that that was indicative that someone of royalty had been born. So that's sort of how God got their attention. And they followed the star all the way to Jerusalem, and then the star stops at Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting to me that the Lord stops them in Jerusalem. The star could have kept going and bypassed Jerusalem and gone straight to Bethlehem, but it didn't. It took them to Jerusalem, and then they stop in Jerusalem, and they go to Herod, and they begin to ask the question. We've been following his star. Where is he? And the reason I want to point this out is because I think a lot of times in our walk with the Lord, God comes to us, and He begins to work in our lives, and we begin to follow Him, and some great things begin to happen, and we're feeling like we're really moving with God, and then all of a sudden, the star, so to speak, that we've been following in our lives stops. And we are sort of standing back saying, God, you were speaking to me, you were working in my life, you were leading me, you were guiding me, you were doing things in my life, and then everything seems to have stopped. You seem to have become silent. Where is God? You know, when you, when you don't know the Lord and you're not walking with Him, you're not serving Him, and you ask the question, where is God? We sort of feel like that's understandable because we haven't been seeking Him and we haven't been walk, walking with Him. So, yeah, where is God? But when you've been trying to walk with Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus and stay close to Jesus and you find yourself then asking the question, where is God? That's a tough place to be in life. Some of the greatest struggles I've seen in the years that I've been as a pastor have been people who've loved the Lord, walked with the Lord, served the Lord, and they've sat in my office and they've looked at me and they've said, Pastor, I can't figure out where God is right now in my life. He seems to have gone silent. The star looks like he got stuck in its place in the sky. Where is God in the middle of this? You see, what the Lord does here with these wise men is He takes them from a star... To the Word. He takes them from following a star, what we would call general revelation, to the Word from the prophet Micah, which is very specific. And listen, when God seems to go silent in your life, when the star doesn't seem to be there anymore, when things don't seem to be moving, what is God doing? He has not walked away from you. He has not abandoned you. He is just switching how He's communicating with you. And God will always take you to His Word when He is doing that. And He will take you to more specific information and direction about Him when He does that. And so what the Lord does here with these men is He takes them from the star to the prophet Micah. Takes them to the Word. God will always direct your attention to the Word. So if you get to a place and you say, God, I don't know where you are and why aren't you speaking to me and why aren't you working in my life and it seems to have stopped, just, just say, Lord, what do I need to study? What do I need to look at in your Word? Because God will take you to His Word. We get in so much trouble when that happens in our lives and we back away from the Word and we don't go to the Word. And listen, Satan will do everything he can to discourage you and keep you out of the Word. But if you go to the Word, God will prompt your worship. God will take you where He wants to take you in that. Now notice he gives them direction. The star had beckoned them to follow. And he gives them specific direction here. He tells them they're to go to a specific city. They're to go to Bethlehem. And when they get there, notice what he says, verse 6. You're going to go to Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Now they've got a specific place to go. And 
Then he goes on, he says, for from you shall come a ruler. More specific information, more direction. You're looking for a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So when they leave Jerusalem, they have, a, they have specific direction. We're headed to Bethlehem of Judah. They have a specific idea of what they're going to find when they get there. They are going to find a ruler. And they're going to find one who is going to function as a shepherd in their lives and in the lives of people. Now, going back to the theme of the hope of worship and how does God prompt our worship. Notice how he is prompting them and preparing them to worship when they get to Bethlehem and they find Jesus. First of all, he prompts their worship by giving them direction. This is where you're supposed to go. The second way he prompts their worship is he's saying this is who this person is going to be. This is who the king of the Jews is going to be. He's going to be a ruler. You guys are, consider yourselves ruler, but you're going to find the ruler and he's not only going to be a ruler, he is going to be a shepherd. Now, follow what I'm about to say. What he was doing here, what God is doing in the, with them and giving them specific direction. And he is also giving them here specific revelation about who they are going to worship when they get there. Notice what they say in verse 2. It says, where is he who's been born, been born king of the Jews? They've been told he's a king. They say, we have seen his star. Notice, his star, it belongs to him. Again, verse 6, they've got the word of the prophet. And then when they get to Bethlehem and they go in the house and they see Jesus, he's right there in front of them. And they begin to worship him. Their worship is based and grows out of and is empowered by the specific revelation that God is giving them. Who Jesus is. He's a ruler. He's a shepherd of my people Israel. That's what is the fuel of their worship. The truth that God is giving them about His Son. The direction that God is giving them to get to where His Son is. Their worship is not based on their feelings. It is not based on their emotions. They didn't leave get to Jerusalem saying, man, we're really feeling good about this business of finding who's going to be the king of the Jews and worship him. They didn't leave Jerusalem saying, man, we got that quiver in our stomach and we're really feeling good about this. They didn't get to Bethlehem and see Jesus and say, man, we really got the blood flowing and our blood pressure's going up and we're so excited. We can't wait to worship him. What they did was all along the journey, they moved with the star, then they moved the specific revelation and then they saw Jesus. You see, what God was doing was He was fueling their worship with specific truth about Himself. And folks, if you and I are going to worship in the way the Bible instructs us to worship, the fuel of our worship, the empowerment of our worship is truth that God gives us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not focused on our emotions. 
Too many Christians look to come to church or anything else and get their emotions stirred and their emotions up. And if they can get up to a certain emotional level and hold it at a certain emotional level, then they consider that worship. But they've always got to keep it up here. And they're looking constantly for catalysts to keep the emotions up here and the excitement up here so that they can worship. If you do that, your worship is going to end up going down the tubes pretty quickly. Because what God intends to empower our worship is truth about who He is. And that's what they encountered here. Now, when they get to Bethlehem, it says that they go to the house and there they see Mary and the child. Now, Bible scholars wrestle around with how old Jesus was at this point. Now, let me pause and say that one of the confusing aspects of Christmas is that we got a, I've got a nativity scene right here on the Lord's Supper table. And we've got the wise men there at the, at, the, at the manger there and in the stable and all that. And all the nativity sets you see have always got the wise men with the nativity, etc. Now this is wonderful and looks great. The biggest problem is it's just not biblical. Because when the wise men came, Jesus was not in a manger in the nativity as we picture it. He was in a house with his mother. And he was probably either a few weeks old or many believe that he may have been as much as a year to two years of age. Now, get the picture here. Because I wrestled with this this week. I have raised a preschooler years ago. We have preschoolers in our church. We have preschoolers here we see every week. Can you imagine three or more men who were wealthy, well-educated, leaders in their day, get access to a royal court just by showing up? And if you'd been standing on the side in the house that day, you would have watched them walk in dressed wonderfully with some really expensive gifts fall down on their knees before this one or two year old who's running around in his diaper. Now we never imagine it that way. Because that don't fit real well with our songs and our conceptualization of it. And usually in the artwork through the years, you know, Jesus is walking around with this big glow over his head, you know, and everybody's got the glow thing over top of their head, and they're all sedate and wonderful, and even Jesus is dressed really nice, etc., etc. I've never seen one or two-year-olds running around dressed like, you know, Jesus is dressed, etc., etc. He would have been running around with some kind of cloth diaper on, and just acting like any preschooler acts. And he's got these three guys worshiping him and presenting treasures. And can you imagine him standing there holding his mama's hand at that point, think, looking sort of like a face, you know, expression, not like, oh, come and worship me, but probably like, what in the world are they doing, mama? And I don't even know if, from, as a preschooler, if he'd have been that excited about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, when I was one to two year old, and when my son was little, a little car or a stuffed animal or something like that, if somebody had given me gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I'd have picked it up and thrown it somewhere else and gone out just like getting underwear on your birthday, you know, or Christmas. You're not happy about it, and oh yeah, I'll throw it aside. So it, the, the whole scene here is just sort of weird the way it's getting played out. Now, 
Some of this we need to understand in the historical context of that day. We live in a democracy, a democratic republic here in the United States, so we don't really understand the concept of royalty. But in the ancient world, and even today, if you are born of royalty, the minute you pop out, you are royal. And you are treated that way, way before you assume the throne. Have you ever noticed every time one of the uh, William or et cetera has a, a, ba- a baby, you know, the, the whole world gets all excited about it, you know, and they keep talking about George. And why, why is that? Because those children are content, considered royalty and treated as such from the day they are born. So when they looked at Jesus that day, even though they saw a baby in a diaper, they weren't just looking at a little guy there in the house. They were looking at the circumference of his life. And even though they didn't know everything he would do and where he would go, they knew they had royalty on their hands. Follow me on this. Jesus hadn't done a thing. He hadn't done one miracle. Hadn't died on a cross, rose from the dead, changed a person's life. But they're down on their knees worshiping Him because they recognize that He in who He is, is divine royalty. How many times do you and I, our worship waits on God to do a miracle for us today? To answer a prayer today? Instead of saying to Jesus when I get up in the morning, Lord, my worship of you today is not dependent on how good I feel. It's not dependent on whether I can look at one prayer you've answered in the last 24 hours, the last 24 days, the last 24 years. My worship of you is totally based on the fact that you are the divine Son of God. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You don't have to perform for me in order for me to worship you. If worship is based on performance, this is what we start doing. We start putting God to the test that every day He's got to perform for us. Every hour He's got to perform for us. Every prayer has got to be answered on time in the way we want it answered or we're not going to worship Him. But worship is rather to be based upon Him as the King of kings, and we just worship Him for who He is. Now, we got a huge advantage over the wise men. All they knew was to worship Him because He was royalty. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament, and all that prophecy that's come true from the Old Testament to see who Jesus is. So when I worship Him, I can worship Him for the people that He healed, for the dead bodies that He raised. I can worship Him for the truth that He taught. I can worship Him for the fact that He died on the cross and shed every ounce of blood in His body, that three days later He conquered the grave and death and hell. I can worship Him for all that the Bible reveals Him to be. If the wise men had cause to worship Him, we have got one million more reasons to worship Him for what He has done and for who He is and for what He has accomplished. Now, when they came in there that day and they fell down and they began to worship Him, what were they discovering about God that prompted their worship? Number one, they realized how small God can be. They were realizing how small God can be. Now, before you think I'm a heretic for talking about how small God can be, I want you to think about this. How many of you girls, when you were growing up, ever had a dollhouse? 
Can I, can I see your hand? Did your parent ever try to put their head into your dollhouse when you, they were playing with it to sort of see the world that you were creating in your dollhouse? How many of you guys ever built a fort or had a treehouse? Did your parent ever try to get up in the treehouse or climb into the fort? You see, what happens when parents do that? Kids have their world. And the parent has to do what? The parent has to get down on their knees in order to get into the world of their child. And why does a parent do that? Because the parent loves the child and wants to connect to their child. You see, what the wise men realized that day when they saw that little guy in the house with his, by his mom is that God had gotten down on their level and he had cramped himself into their small lives compared to this universe because he loved them and he wanted to connect to them. And I don't care how small and insignificant you may feel that your life is, Jesus finds a way to cramp himself into your small life. And he can fill our lives. They saw how much God can become small in order to enter into our lives. The second thing that they realized when they walked in there and looked at that little guy was how humble God is. They saw divine humility. Jesus was vulnerable and he was dependent on teenage parents. As best we can tell, Mary and Joseph were probably no more than 16 or 17 years of age at this time. So the Son of God is dependent on teenage parents. There was no army of angels standing outside the door guarding him and protecting him. He was incredibly vulnerable. So vulnerable that Joseph, his teenage dad, not too long after this, has to gather the family up and flee to Egypt to make sure that Herod doesn't kill him. That is the humility of God. And when they stood there, they looked at that guy and they realized how humble God is. And then... They go over there. They've been able to get to Bethlehem where he is. They've been able to get to the house. They've been able to get in the house. They've been able to lay their eyes on him. What is God showing them that it prompts their worship? How approachable he is. Can you, can you imagine how they would have felt? This is the king. This is the Messiah. The son of God. And he's the little baby. Which means we can get close to him. We're right here in the same room with him. That's how approachable God is. That's what God was trying to teach them and to teach us. That he's not way up in the sky somewhere. That he's not locked up in the heavens when we have no hope of getting close to him. That that baby, that young child, that preschooler is his way of saying, this is how approachable I am. I came into church this morning, and one of our preschoolers came running up to me, called me by my name, and threw his arm around my leg. I just sort of made my morning. But they also spoke to me about how approachable he is. You don't ever have to ask for an audience with a preschooler. You get one. 
Even when you don't ask for it, you get one. And they realized that day, this is how approachable God is. And that caused them to fall down and worship Him. Now notice what they do. First of all, in verse 2, they tell Herod, we've come to worship Him. Verse 11 It says, they fell on their knees and worshipped him. The word worship here, the Greek word that's used here means to go down on your knees. It means to indicate that you will obey. It is an act of reverence. It is a way of saying physically with our bodies that we value someone for their importance. That we have an opportunity to get close to him. That we respect him. That we adore him. It is the idea, literally the idea of the word that's translated worship here is to get down on your knees and to bow before someone because you consider them worthy and important. The other thing these men were saying is they got down on their knees and worshipped Him. And I can't stress this enough. They were men of leadership, of wealth, of importance, able to command an audience with the king just by showing up. But when they fell down on their knees before that little guy, what they were saying to Jesus and to God and to themselves and to anybody else is we have found one that is bigger and greater than us. We have found one that is bigger and greater than us. And folks, let's just be really, really honest. How many times do we not worship because there's no one bigger in our lives than us? There's no opinion bigger than our opinion. There's no one's perspective more greater than our perspective. There's no one calling the shots beyond us calling the shots. And when they got on their knees, they were saying, we found one that is greater and bigger and more worthy than we are. And that's why we're worshiping. And listen, you and I will never worship till we come to the place to say that Jesus is bigger and greater in our mind and in our heart than we are in our mind and in our heart. All the things that hold us back from worship, we are setting above the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it is our inability and our unwillingness to let go of things. And to let go of unforgiveness. And to let go of the things that we struggle with. To say that nothing is going to take the place Of His preeminence. My fear is not going to take the place of His preeminence. My grief is not going to take the place. My unforgiveness of someone who's hurt me is not going to take the place of Jesus in my life. Nothing is going to take and no one is going to take the place. He is the greatest in my life. And notice what they do here. It says they open their treasuries. And out of them they begin to pull gold. Which would have been the gift you would have given to royalty. Frankincense. And myrrh. They're giving the best they've got to Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, it's easy for us to look at this story and to say, well, you know, those kings, those wise men, they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They had some real tough stuff for their day. So they had treasure there, and they had treasure they could give to him, and it was worthy of him, and it's a great. But I don't have anything to give to Jesus that's worthy of him. That's why God put the treasure in you to give back to him. So you don't have to wait on coming up with your treasure. You just need to find the treasure that he already placed in you. We have this treasure where in jars of clay. Who are the jars of clay? We are the jars of clay. And a plain old clay jar isn't impressive to anybody. But the issue is not how the jar of clay. The issue is the treasure in the jar of clay. See, too many of us are focused on how clayy we are. We look at ourselves in the mirror in the mornings. Well, some of us do. Some of us do and say, you know, I just don't have it. Now, I probably got a few folks listening to look in the, look in the mirror in the morning and say, man, I got it going on. But, you know, sooner or later, all of us get to the place where we look in the mirror and we say, yeah, I got into the place I look in the mirror in the morning. I still got hair on my head. I'm happy about it. I, it gives me a cause to rejoice. The guy said, I used to worry it was going to turn gray, and now it's just all turning loose. So anyway, but, you know, we look in that mirror in the morning, and we're tempted to think, I just don't have anything to give or to offer to the Lord or to anybody else. We look in our lives so often, and we think, I just don't have anything to give or to offer. We compare ourselves to other people, which is the worst thing we can do, and say, I don't even begin to give have to give what other people have got to give. Because all we're focusing on is the clayness of our lives, is the jar. And when Paul wrote those words, there were jars of clay by the tens of thousands all over the Middle East. And all of them had one thing in common. They were boring looking. But he's saying the issue is not what your clay jar looks like, it's what's inside the jar. And what's inside your jar is what God has put inside your jar. He's put treasure in there. Find out what it is and offer it to Jesus. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait for us to find treasure and put it in there? He put the treasure in there without even asking our permission. Let me tell you something about your treasure. Your treasure is going to be unique to you. It's going to be unique to the plan of God for your life. Your treasure doesn't have to impress anybody. It's already impressed God because it came from Him. Your treasure inside of you, what God's placed inside of you, has a specific place, time, and people that God wants to use your life in to touch them. And it's the result of God's work. Now, what is that treasure? I can't give you the details of it, but let me just give you a few things you can be on the lookout for when you start to discern the treasure God has placed in your life. Number one, what are the gifts that God has placed in your life? Stuff that you have a passion to do, something that you are good at, etc. I mean, we sat here this morning and listened to our praise band. And when I look up here on this stage, I see people who have gifts and talents in music. 
Lord, if I got up on this stage and started beating on a drum or playing a guitar or whatever, I could do one thing. I could empty the room, but I sure couldn't enhance anybody's worship. That's not my treasure, but that's part of their treasure. That's a gift that God has placed in your life, a passion that you have for something that God has placed in your life, your gift, your talent, your ability. Another treasure that you've got in your life is the testimony of God's grace in your life. The testimony of God's grace in your life. Some of you that I'm talking to today, you've gone through some rough knocks in life. Some of you I'm talking to right now, you are going through some rough places in life. But you see, your life is not about the rough place. Your life can be about the grace of God and how God met you in that place and God has worked in your life and God is working in your life and the Lord's bringing you through. And your life can be a testimony and that's your treasure of what God has done in my life, how He's worked in my life, how He's taking my life and using this particular incident or this series of things that were difficult and terrible and I didn't ask for them, but God met me there and with His grace... He has brought me through and is bringing me through. And the work and the testimony of God's grace in your life is the treasure that He has placed in you. The shaping of your personality by Jesus. I know that everybody's got their own personality. And some people have got personalities that they would think, man, my personality stinks. But our personality, listen, all of our personalities are sort of screwed up, okay? As a deacon of mine used to say, all God's children got issues. But our personalities that are in the process of being shaped and being formed by Jesus, that's a treasure. That God is shaping your personality and He's going to use your personality the way He wants to and in unique ways for His honor and for His glory. Listen, when you and I look into our lives and we talk about what we can't do and what we don't have and we compare ourselves to others and we're all down on ourselves, let me tell you what we're doing. That's not humility. That is trashing the treasure God put inside of you. Trashing the treasure that God put inside of you and is putting inside of you. Look in your life. Look at what God has put inside of you, what God is doing. Don't compare it to somebody else's treasure. That is the worst thing that you and I can do. And we love to do that. Oh, I can't do it like that person. I can't sing like that person. I can't preach like that person. I can't do this, do that, whatever. When I was a young guy in the ministry, the first Southern Baptist Convention I went to, Dr. Adrian Rogers was president of the Southern Baptist Convention that year. And I remember Adrian Rogers got up and preached. He had this huge melodious, tremendous voice, and he had this tremendous mind, and he got up there and preached his great sermon. I remember I could sit there, and I thought, I'll never be an Adrian Rogers. You know something? God never called me to be an Adrian Rogers. God called me to be who I am. Don't compare yourself to other people. God's got a unique place He wants to use you. Look, find the treasure that He has placed in your life, the work that He is doing in your life, and then do what with it? Worship Him as an act of giving your treasure to Him. In the video that we looked at this morning, the medical missions video, did you hear what that man said? He said, God called me to be a doctor, and he called me into missions on the same day. Simply what that man did was he just looked in his life, and he saw a passion he had for medicine. He became a doctor, and in his particular case, where God wanted to use him was take him to the mission field, and he has had a huge opportunity to share Christ with Taiwanese people Because he's able to meet their medical needs first. And that creates a hearing for him then to share Christ with them. 
Oh, the Lord's got people that you'll be able to touch and reach for Him that nobody else probably could because of the uniqueness of who you are and the uniqueness of the treasure that He has and is forming in you. Finally, He prompts our worship by placing the treasure inside of us that we can give back to Him as we serve Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that in the story of these wise men, we see the story of how you prompt our worship. That you help us to see that you are small enough to come into our lives because you love us so much. For how you place treasure in us that we can give back to worship you. And that, Jesus, we worship you just because of who you are. Lord, give us the confidence and the courage to do like those men did. And just fall down and worship you, Jesus. And God, give us the humility to say there is one so much greater than we are that we can worship. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, the first act of worship that any of us take is to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, I will follow you and I will serve you. And I encourage you right now, whether you're in this room or whether you're listening through some social media platform or either through our radio ministry, to say to Jesus today, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to walk with you. And I give you who I am. It may not be a very impressive treasure by this world standards or even in my own eyes. But Lord, this jar of clay belongs to you at this point. I belong to you, Jesus. I'll follow you and I'll serve you. And God right now is saying back to you, you're mine. And I'm going to place the treasure of my Holy Spirit in your life. Lord, we bless you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.